It was a public elementary school, and so I remember we had to partner with a local bank to fundraise to bring an outside director in, and the first thing this director did was host auditions. Most of the 10 and 11-year-olds sang something from, I guess, what you'd expect, a sort of age-appropriate repertoire, songs like Happy Birthday to You and Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, but I followed the beat of a little bit different drummer. And when it was my turn to audition, I can remember taking a deep breath, stepping up to the microphone and singing, is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Open your eyes. Look up to the sky and see. Well, I think that that director was so surprised and probably a little bit befuddled that she gave me one of the starring roles. And I had an absolute blast performing in that, that theater production. But as you can probably notice from my very poor rendition of that Freddie Mercury classic, I never made a career out of musical theater. However, that experience, auditioning for that play and then starring in it, is one of the first experiences I can recollect that felt like a kind of calling, that felt like I was being called into some sort of a role that was appropriate to who I am deep down and most authentically, and also felt like an opportunity to allow something creative and expressive to call out of me. It was as if this creative energy that was yearning to, put, to be put in service to a greater good was given an opening to do so. We talk about calling a lot in the church, and I don't think we always get those conversations right. I think sometimes when we talk about calling, we assume that we're talking about a call to ordained ministry. We think of the type of role that someone like me or Jimmy or Brian or Mary or Christy, your so-called Jackson 5, as we like to refer to ourselves, <laughs> we think that that is the roles that we're considering when we talk about calling. But each and every one of us is called to an act of ministry. To borrow a phrase from the Episcopal priest Barbara Brown Taylor, we all have an altar in the world. Whether it's the desk that we sit at each day, or the keyboard, or it's an operating table, or a checkout counter, we all have an altar at which we're called to serve. Every one of us is such a complex creature. We're this amalgamation of family history and genetics and personality traits, and each one of us has a different combination of skills, gifts, passions, and desires that we're invited to express to, toward this core purpose of building a new reality of love and liberation for all people. Of course, in the Bible, there are all sorts of stories of calling, and we're given one in our gospel from John today. So we're given a version of what we've been calling the story before the story. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, is out in the countryside around the River Jordan calling people to repent, 
to sort of turn their lives around, to change their minds and reconsider the ways they're living out their faith commitments in relationship with the loving, liberating God. We're told that John is hanging out with a couple of his students, and then Jesus walks by. John recognizes him, points to him, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's essentially saying that this whole history of relationship with the divine that we've been contemplating and sharing with our family members is reaching its culmination in this individual who will break the story open and incarnate a new reality of love and liberation for all people. John responds to Jesus when he sees him, and he has a couple of students with him, one of whom, named Andrew, also feels his heart stir and kindle. Andrew goes and finds his brother Peter, and they go and find Jesus in turn, ask him where, they're, where he's staying, and he says, come and see, follow me. And each one of these three individuals, John, Andrew, and Peter, offer something of who they are most deeply in service of Christ and in response to this invitation to follow him. And they're all unique individuals and human beings. I mean, John the Baptist, he's this sort of impassioned, prophetic voice who's so strident in his message and his invitation for people to join him in this new effort of love and liberation that he gets beheaded. Andrew's kind of like more of a connector, maybe a little more reticent, leads from the second chair. He goes and gets his brother Peter and introduces him to Jesus. Nonetheless, tradition tells us that Andrew goes on to found all sorts of churches throughout Eastern Europe and around the Mediterranean. And then Peter, passionate, impatient, even impertinent Peter. He's the one who confesses Jesus and then denies him. He's so dramatic, and yet he's the person on whom Christ builds his church. Each one of these individuals, these personalities, these personas are completely distinct from one another. John is not Peter. Peter is not, is not Andrew. And yet God works through all of them and summons out their desires and gifts and passions into the work of building this new creation. Every saint is unique. And each one of us is similarly called to follow Jesus in the way that these first students did. One of the most saintly people that I've ever known is a man named Rowan Williams. And some of you may recognize that name. Rowan Williams was the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the head of the worldwide Anglican communion for about 10 years in the early thousands. Rowan Williams is Welsh. He was born in Swansea in Wales. He's a very tall, almost imposing human being. He would be intimidating except for the little twinkle and glimmer of joy and kindness in his eyes. He has this sort of long, flowing mane of hair and a long, flowing beard, and in some ways reminds me of Gandalf the White Wizard if he were reincarnated as an Anglican priest. And Rowan Williams is absolutely brilliant. He's written over 30 or 40 books. He taught himself Russian so he could read Dostoevsky in the original. And he has said one of the most intelligent things on the idea of calling that I've ever read. I was assigned a transcription of some talks he gave during my first year in seminary. And he gave these talks to a set of seminary students who were preparing for ordination. 
And what he says is so very fascinating. He says that essentially, when we think about calling, we often get it wrong. We often think of God as a sort of divine film director who's scripting the story of the world. And each one of us, John and Anne and Anne and Clay, all have a part to play, we think. And our job is to figure out what that role is and then slot ourselves in to position our lives in such a way that we can live out that role. But he says that that's an unhelpful and perhaps even unhealthy way to think about calling. On the one hand, it makes calling into something static and even stagnant. It makes it seem as if we only have one role to play in this unfolding drama of creation that we're all invited to participate in. But we know that callings unfold over the course of a lifetime. We can have different callings depending on our seasons of life, and we can even have different callings simultaneously. Secondly, William says it's not helpful because it puts all this pressure on us to try to wrap our minds around God's desire for our lives, to try to wrap our heads around God's heads, which is pretty difficult and probably impossible to do. William says more helpfully, we should think about calling as getting in touch with the gifts and desires and the passions that are uniquely calling out of us to be put in service of a greater good. A lot of you know that I came to St. John's from the University of Texas, and when I'd be talking with undergraduates about this theme of calling, I had a couple different authors that I would appeal to to try to help us get our heads and hearts around this. They'd say, well, Travis, how do I know what those deep desires and hungers and gifts within me are? And I would usually reference one of my favorite thinkers, a guy named Joseph Campbell. Some of you maybe have heard of Joseph Campbell. He was a scholar of comparative mythology, and he basically found out that there was one single structure in every plot of the great stories in our tradition, from Homer's Odyssey to Star Wars. The hero is called out of his or her home, descends into darkness, into the belly of the whale, and does battle with a dragon, then receives some sort of gift or sacred elixir or learning and goes back to their community. And Joseph Campbell, when asked by his students how to find their purpose in life, their sense of calling, he would say, follow your bliss. Follow your bliss. Find your flow state. Get in touch with that thing that requires all of your attention, and yet you get lost in it and am not even, aren't even sure that time has even passed. And that's all well and good, but when I would talk with college students, or especially high schoolers, about following their bliss, they would often say, oh, I know what that is. I know what my bliss is. That's snowboarding, or that's playing video games. Maybe so. I mean, we could all watch a snowboarder like Travis Rice or Jeremy Jones and feel pretty inspired, but I would imagine that for most of us, recreation is different from vocation. So I would balance Joseph Campbell's insights with those of another great writer, a Presbyterian minister named Frederick Beekner. And what Frederick Beekner says is the place where God calls us is where our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet where our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, then the challenge becomes a little bit more simpler. We try to look at that nexus of passion and need. 
We try to figure out what are those things that kindle our hearts or maybe that make our blood boil. What are the injustices that we see in the world around us? Whether it's affordable housing or lack of accessibility to clean water or the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. Where can we help inspire? Where can we intervene? And then we get to work. Sometimes that's difficult to do, right? I mean, you might say, Travis, this all sounds well and good. I'm in touch with some of my deep gladness, but I also have a mortgage to pay. I also have kids to take care of. I also have different professional commitments, boards that I serve on. But could you do something each day or maybe each week, something minuscule and actionable to nurture that part of you that feels most alive and most unique, that, to till that soil where these gifts are wanting to spring up deep within your heart. It could be Googling something, doing a little bit of research. It could be apprenticing yourself to someone who's achieved success in a certain sphere. It could be getting up just a little bit earlier or staying up after your kids go to bed and rather than binging Netflix like I tend to do, Work on that project, that thing that makes your heart sing. Because, friends, life is short. All of us are born into this life that we did not ask for and are hurtling toward a grave we cannot escape. And whether contemplating our mortality feels morbid or we have to ask ourselves, does it feel morbid or does it feel like an invitation? An invitation to see life as what it is, this precious and fleeting gift. Those things within you, those passions and desires and curiosities are there for a reason. They were put inside of you, the creatures of this world, by your creator. And honoring those things is the key to a life of serenity, of peace, of purpose, and one free of resentment. And if this all starts to seem a little bit too amorphous and complex, we can always just get back to the basics and look at Jesus. In this passage, Jesus' invitation is so simple. He says, follow me. Follow me. And we see these different disciples do that in a variety of ways. This is the second to last quote from a theologian I will give you today in this sermon. (laughs) Carl Jung, who is a student of Sigmund Freud and broke with Freud over the question of religion, used to say that the imitation of Christ doesn't mean that we ape the wounds of Christ's crucifixion. By that, he means that we don't literally have to become itinerant rabbis who create a movement that feels so threatening to the political and religious authorities that we get put to death and crucified. Although if we look to lives like someone like Martin Luther King Jr., whose feast day we celebrate tomorrow, this has been a pattern that so many faithful Christians have followed. But what Jung says is that true imitation of Christ means that we're as faithful to what our call is, to cultivating those things that are yearning to be called out of us in services of greater good as Jesus was to his own sense of call. And I think if we look back over the courses of our lives, we can also see little threads little invitations, little indications of where the Holy Spirit has planted seeds that want to come to fruition. I mean, I didn't become a theater actor or a a professional musician, but I do get to stand on a certain type of stage most Sunday mornings, and I do get to sing, albeit behind the voice of our professional and very accomplished choir members. 
There are threads everywhere. And if we look back over the course of our lives, if we spend a little time in quiet meditation, reflection, or in conversation with those around us, we may see what type of gifts are calling out from deep within us and asking to be brought in service of a greater good. I want to conclude with an image that's helped me to do so. If we look at the life of John the Baptist, and especially in this passage, we see that there's a posture of the heart and of physicality that John takes on. Behold the Lamb of God, he says. He doesn't live out his ministry for his own sake alone, but he points always back to the creator. In all that he creates, he points himself back to the divine. And I think of our callings almost like we're stained glass windows. Each of us is a different configuration of shapes and colors, and yet nonetheless, we all let the, life in, the light in. In the words of C.S. Lewis that I'll use to close, when we let that light shine through us as well, the eyes of others cannot just focus on us as agents of the divine, but go back up the sunbeam to the sun. Back up the sunbeam to the sun. And I think Lewis meant that in both senses, S-O-N and S-U-N. So beloved, church, in this season of Epiphany, I invite you to join me in finding ways to discern what are the unique gifts and passions and energies that are welling up deep within you and yearning, crying out to be put toward the service of a greater good. Can we spend time cultivating those gifts, those energies, and those passions so that our lives as love-spreading difference makers will not simply shine in and of their own, but they will also let the eyes of others run back up the sunbeam to the sun. Amen.